Hey everyone, this is Alex and Ben. Welcome back to another episode of the Oregon Bridge. It will certainly be the most interesting governor's race in the entire country to watch. Betsy's within striking distance. Kotech, I think, probably is in the driver's seat right now. That's my best guess. National groups are definitely looking at Oregon on the congressional level. Why do polls matter? I don't think polls matter right now in terms of predicting the outcome of the election, but I do think polls have an impact on how organizations and donors allocate their support to candidates. The total raised for this race, I think we have to estimate is north of 20 million. All right, everyone. Thanks so much for tuning in. You will just have me and Ben today, and we are going to talk about some of the top stories that we are following over the summer as we continue to get closer to election day. And it's actually really crazy, Ben, that when this episode publishes, we will be basically three months away from election day. Well, actually, well, kind of like three and a half months. But regardless, we are quickly approaching November. Things are happening. Money is being spent. Polls are being released. So let's go ahead and start with Congress, because I think that's probably what most people are paying attention to, especially with recent Supreme Court rulings. But then also there has been a number of announcements that there are national groups taking a look at Oregon, both on the state level and on the federal level. But let's go ahead and talk about Congress first. So the topic, Ben, that we come up with today is does the majority in Congress run through Oregon? So what's your take on that? So yeah, this is one of the stories that I am interested to watch this summer because there's a few different potentials. One is that, as I'm sure you hope occurs, Alex, that a large red wave overtakes many, many congressional seats and Republicans hold a solid majority. There's also a scenario in which it's a narrow majority on either side. Democrats barely hang on to control or Republicans narrowly win back enough seats to have a majority. I think in the latter scenario, there's a very real chance that Oregon's congressional seats play a role in determining who has the majority. So of our six congressional seats, three of them could plausibly be won by either party. I think most folks, and Alex, you can disagree, would say that probably on the least likely to flip red would be CD4, the most likely to flip red would be CD5, and then CD6 would probably be somewhere in the middle. CD4, of course, outgoing Congressman Peter DeFazio, current Democratic nominee is Labor Commissioner Val Hoyle, Republican candidate is Alex Scarlatos. In CD5, you've got Democrat Jamie McLeod Skinner, fresh off a, a victory in the primary over the incumbent Kurt Schrader against former Happy Valley Mayor Lori Chavez de Reamer. And then in CD6, Representative Andrea Salinas against Republican Mike Erickson. So my basic, what I'm going to be watching for this summer is two things. One, fundraising totals, because I think if a big gap is, if there's a big gap in in fundraising between any two candidates in any of those three races, I think it makes it incredibly less likely that you'll see outside super PAC spending on TV as we get closer to the election. That's number one. And two is polling, because I think it's got the same effect. Like these national groups who could spend literally millions and millions of dollars as they do in swing congressional seats in other parts of the country. Is there public polling that shows the race is winnable for whichever side that they're supporting? And if not, or obviously they'll be conducting private polling as well, which hopefully we can get our hands on. But if there's not polling, the fundraising isn't competitive, then I think 
they will probably take a pass on any congressional race that doesn't fit one of those two or both of those two metrics. That's what I'm thinking. How are you thinking about the races, Alex? I think that CD5, as you said, has the best chance of flipping for Republicans. And I think that Lori, who for trans, well, we've had her on the pod like three times now, and for transparency is a friend of mine. I think one, she's run a number of highly competitive races already, right? So like, she's not new to this at all. And two, I think it was a huge blow to Dems to have the upset with Schrader. One, Schrader has great name ID from running a lot. Two, he was just, I mean, a pinnacle of Oregon politics in a way that I don't really think any other candidate would be maybe like a widen or something like that. But there's kind of that whole thing to consider. And then two or three, as we talked about, the national environment is very good for Republicans. It's pretty much made up in my mind as someone who used to do this professionally that Republicans are going to retake the House and they're going to retake the Senate. I think it would be if Dems were able to hold on to one of those, I would think that's like that is the nightmare scenario for Republicans, which, of course, if you're looking at that from a Democratic perspective, you say that uh, our dream scenario is not that great if Alex thinks our best scenario is to withhold one of the two houses. So I, I definitely think Lori has a really good shot of being able to win and that she's kind of been lining up the right support nationally and that people are clearly paying attention to the race. What I will say, Alex, is I think, you know, the only public polling we've seen in CD5 basically shows it's neck and neck. 538 does say that it's 73% chance of Chavez Dreamer winning. Those numbers are going to shift for sure, one way or the other. They're going to fluctuate probably between now and Election Day. If you're not a subscriber to the Liftoff newsletter, we'll link in the description. We're planning to do some deep dives on the congressional races, the governor's race, and maybe some other races as well with all the available numbers and some analysis on what to look for, what factors could matter, best case scenario for each candidate, et cetera, et cetera. And what I'll say about Jamie just in brief is very exciting candidate to the base of the party. The people who, if they don't vote, Democrats are in trouble. She does a great job of inspiring them. She's got probably a larger grassroots donor base than maybe any Democrat in Oregon, but certainly in the top tier of candidates. And she has this sort of rural appeal, which could matter in that district, particularly, you know, this is the first time Central Oregon um, has been in a non-safe red district, I think in my lifetime. So I think Jamie definitely has some advantages as well. And I think it's going to be a very close race. But anyway, you were going to talk about the other two races and then uh, we should move on to the next story. Yeah. And I think if it wasn't Jamie or Schrader, that seat's like 100% lost. So I think, again, I still think Schrader would have put Dems in a better position, probably actually leaned the seat back to Dems. Maybe though, I don't know. I mean, it's really bad national environment, but I think you know, I think Jamie will still put up a great race and clearly she's a well-proven fundraiser and a proven campaigner too. But yeah, moving on to the other races, I think those are less likely to be flipped, partially just because of the current partisan breakdown of what they both are right now. They're a little bit harder. And again, I just think Dems, I think our GOP candidates are good. I just think like the real scenario, I think we needed to win both of those seats is if there was someone who was very, very progressive or someone who was maybe like, a little bit fringe, but got like 33% in the primary versus a bunch of other candidates or something like that and didn't really rally the base. But that didn't happen, right? I mean, we have Salinas and then we have Val Hoyle. So that's kind of unfortunate for the Republicans in that because they're basically facing, again, two strong candidates. And the thing is, is that you have to think about this from a national perspective, right? Like national groups are definitely looking at Oregon on the congressional level, but there is swing seats in Florida, Ohio, 
Pennsylvania, Michigan, California, Texas, et cetera, right? And I, I literally was in the room, we were making these decisions. Like they're looking at the entire map at once. It's not necessarily like they're just looking to say, oh, well, Alex in this district in Oregon or Washington or wherever, like he had one good poll, so maybe we should consider investing there. That's something that's taken in, right? But you have to consider the whole playing field regardless. So I think potentially if the money was there and just if Biden's approvals keep staying low, the price of gas keeps going up, inflation keeps going up, right? Maybe that makes some of those seats a little bit more open. Like, But I think you have to be careful because the media likes to hype this stuff, right? That like, there was an article in Politico the other day that said, like, Republicans are making huge plays into this, like, heavy blue seat in Rhode Island. And just kind of as a political guy, I was like, good job to the press person who placed that story. But like, that's probably not real. That's not actually happening. So that's kind of something to consider, like, read the media and read what they're saying. But like, look where the money is actually being spent. And like, look where resources are being allocated. So I think that's always the most important thing at the end of all right. So the second story that we're going to be tracking this summer that I think most Oregonians are going to be tracking this summer is the governor's race. And in particular, polling in the governor's race. Because right now, I think most political observers agree that the outcome of the governor's race is more unknown in 2022 than it has been in any cycle, at least since 2010, when Kitzhaber narrowly defeated Chris Dudley. And the reason why I say polling in particular is because the two most recent polls painted two completely different pictures about what was happening. So you had one poll that showed Kotek with 33%, Betsy Johnson at 30%, and Christine Drazen in third place with 23% with a four-point margin of error. That was from, uh, I think, from Johnson's camp. And then there was a poll from the House and Senate Republicans that painted a very different picture with Drazen in the lead, a full 10 points higher than she was in the other poll at 32.4%. Kotek a couple of points below where she was at 31.4%, and Betsy Johnson back where Drazen was in the other poll at 24.4%. So again, why do polls matter? We're not saying, like, I don't think polls matter right now in terms of predicting the outcome of the election, but I do think polls have an impact on how organizations and donors allocate their support to candidates. So Betsy's got a lot of high-profile you know, big dollar donors. Right now, in fact, she's got $4.5 million in the bank. Christine Drazen is down at $1.3 million. And Tina Kotek is at, at about $500,000 in the bank. So the polling matters because at some point, those donors are going to have to decide whether they're going to double down on their initial investments in Betsy or they're going to spend on other things like we'll talk about later, the Oregon State Legislature or congressional races or insert other opportunities to invest political dollars. As long as the polling is the way it looks right now, which is I think you could plausibly argue that, you know, Betsy's within striking distance. Kotek, I think, probably is in the driver's seat right now. That's my best guess based on what I've seen, what I've known. But I think like you know, we, we've talked to Reagan Canope about this on the podcast, like people can oftentimes take from polling what they want to see. So that'll be the question is what, what is the public polling that's available show? And then how does that impact institutional and donor behavior? Um, how are you thinking about the governor's race, Alex? It will certainly be the most interesting governor's race in the entire country to watch because, you know, we've had multiple, I think a, each candidate has released a poll that has shown either them winning or them in second and then Kotek either winning or in second. So I think as last, as last liftoff, you put it, it was like, everyone is in agreement that Kotek is the front runner or like the second or one of the two the race yeah. or what, 
Well, one of the two, basically, yeah. Which I mean, I obviously think is is right. Also. Both of those polls had a four point margin of error. So, like, conceivably, they're all yeah. very close to each other. Like, I some people on Twitter were acting like these polls made it clear that so and so was in a distant third, and it's like that's not actually what the polls were saying. <laughs> well, and, and especially when you have three candidates, right? Because it's with two candidates, we could say, okay, Alex is beating Ben. 51 to 49% with a margin of error of, you know, 4% or whatever. But with three candidates, we could have Alex at 33, Ben at 33, and Buddy at 33 with a margin of error of 4%. What does that actually mean? Does that mean Alex is actually six points ahead maybe because he took some points from you and then also took some points from Buddy? Am I down one point and you're up all four and Buddy's down three? Like, that's that's the even crazier thing with the margin of error piece with three actual competitive candidates. Uh, that will be interesting to see. I do think one thing we should bring up is that number that you had looked at earlier, which is that Kotex cash on hand does not look so great right now, I think, compared to some of the other candidates. Yeah, I think that's it's definitely lower. Uh, what you do have to remember is there are some major institutional supporters labor unions, progressive organizations, et cetera, who will contribute very large sums of money to um, Tina Kotek as they have for Kate mm-hmm. Brown, John Kitzhaber, et cetera. Um, so that that number will almost certainly rise in a very, very quick fashion. Like, I mean, together they all have on hand right now about, let's see, you know, a little over $6 million. The total mm-hmm. raised for this race, I think we have to estimate is north of 20 million probably when you count uh when you count primary and general added together so we're still mm-hmm. we're still looking at millions and millions of dollars that will be raised um before this thing is over but i think i do think you're right like i don't think kotek has to raise the most money by any stretch i think she's got some built-in advantages um but she does have to keep it competitive um and be able to afford tv ads and to run you know a strong campaign yeah, and I think the the thing I'm really going to be watching is I, I would be shocked at the end of this if we came to election day and it was like Drazen won with, you know, 35%, you know, Kotsek had 30 and then Betsy had 32. I, I think what is more likely to happen is when s- someone's basically going to sink. So it's one, who is that person going to be? And then two, does that person basically play spoiler or try to torpedo one of the other candidates? And then which candidate basically is that? Uh, I think that's probably the most interesting dynamic of the race. And I think is what will probably happen. Uh, Again, I could be totally wrong. I think literally nobody knows what's going to happen and we'll need to get closer to election day. But that's really what I'm starting to pay attention to and trying to look out for is who is that first person to start slipping? Because one, like, as you said, the lobby and the organizations, the political people, they're going to see that, right? If Drazen starts slipping down into 19, 18, and she's not moving up, people are going to, you know, potentially look at Betsy on the right, I think. But then if Kotek or Betsy starts slipping, what does that have to do on the Dem side of the race as well? Uh, That's what I think will be most interesting to watch over the next couple of months. And like, that's what I think we'll probably find out by the end of the summer and it more so into the fall is like, is this a two person race? And then who are those two people? 
and, and people know my politics. So if you think I'm biased, then you can uh, ignore my perspective here. But there's no way that Tina Kotek is the is the the one who sinks in third place. Like the floor for Democrats in Oregon is much higher, I think. And so really the question is, if you're a Republican who's tired of losing, do you think you have a better chance of winning with Christine Drazen or Betsy Johnson? I think that's the real question. Um, and yeah, so like, like, do, could you imagine a world where this becomes a head to head between Betsy and Tina or excuse me, Betsy and Christine Drazen? Like, there's just no way. Uh, it would, I, uh, it would be interesting. <laughs> <laughs> it's a tough one, but I, I think you're probably right. I think either it's probably going to be Drazen or it's going to be Johnson who slips, but it's just kind of what, what's going to happen there. What would be that dynamic? So Okay, so we got started on this podcast late, so we're going to move uh, a little quickly to the last three. Um, the third story that we're going to be watching this summer is ballot measures. And we're going to talk about one statewide ballot measure and one local ballot measure because they're both actually super important, and we'll talk about why. Uh, let's start with the statewide ballot measure, which is Lift Every Voice Oregon. They have uh, what I would call a gun safety ballot measure and what Alex would call a gun control ballot measure. Um, that is almost certainly uh, going to qualify for the ballot. They've submitted well over enough signatures to the Secretary of State's office. I think they're in the process now of being verified. Um, I will read what uh, the ballot, the draft ballot title says, and then Alex will give his political analysis of why this actually matters for more than just um, gun safety issues. Okay, draft ballot title requires a permit to acquire firearms creates a permit database, prohibits ammunition magazines over 10 rounds with exceptions. Result of a yes vote, yes vote requires permit, completed background check, safety training, fee to acquire firearms, and creates state permit database and prohibits magazines over 10 rounds and creates criminal penalties. Uh, then there's a summary that sort of gives uh, further explanation of that, but these are not new issues to folks who have been involved in the policy scene for a while. So Alex, why do you think this measure might be impactful in Oregon? Yeah, so I, for one, definitely think the measure is going to pass. Uh, so there is that. But I think that- Why? Actually- Why do you think uh, it's going to pass? I just think generally with these, I, I mean, we should probably look at what the opposition will actually fund. But I just think generally in Oregon, with the more- liberal ballot measures it's like it's it's no longer the days where republicans own that space it's like you have uh progressive groups who have money and they also have advocacy and grassroots backing they put together ballot measures and they're able to get this stuff passed they have professional organizations they have professional campaigns uh i think there will be much more opposition to this than what I would say kind of is your standard progressive measure because Oregon actually has some strong gun groups. I think that the uh, Oregon Federation of Firearms will definitely play a role against this. The NRA will probably do something uh, and maybe Gun Owners of America. But I think in general, uh, you know, it's not like both sides are going to be spending tens of millions of dollars uh, putting this forward. Maybe that's going to happen. I would be shocked if that happened. Uh, but you right i think are just gonna see like as turnout happens i mean we've seen the polling from obdc most oregonians support more restrictions on guns 
So I think it's literally just going to come down to people are going to read the ballot measure and say like, yeah, I probably support some more restrictions. So I'm going to vote yes on that. Maybe not even really knowing what they're actually voting for. Mm -hmm. uh, so again, I think it, I think it will probably win. I would be very surprised if that ballot measure did not, did not move forward. Now, I think though, politically, who this ballot measure is going to support the most is Republicans, because there are uh, a very strong set of voters who guns is basically their number one issue. Uh, and I think this is going to energize a lot of those people to get out and vote basically against this ballot measure, which again, I don't think they'll be successful at the end of the day, but they will probably vote for Republicans at least at the top of the ticket and then hopefully for the GOP on the way down the ticket as well. Uh, so I think that the kind of pro on this, again, it's just going to, you're basically going to win because the numbers game doesn't favor the the gun rights side of things. But then their folks, again, are going to be maybe folks to come out who weren't as energized before, but are now more energized to vote. So I think it'll, again, probably pass, but in the end of the day, politically benefit Republicans in terms of voter turnout. Interesting. Yeah, I, um, I also think that I, it might be not to the same degree on the left, but I think there are people who are going to like this, this, this was a mostly volunteer driven effort. If you go look at the Orstar, there's not a lot of like big money interests who fueled this. This was like a interfaith coalition of volunteers who gathered like 160,000 signatures um, over the course of, you know, a few weeks, basically a few months. Um, so I think there's energy on both sides of the issue. Um, I also, if I had to guess, would say that it will win. But I think there is an open question to me. You know, statewide ballot measures are really expensive um, and benefit mm -hmm. from like strong um, campaign professionals. And it'll be interesting to see who signs up on both sides, the yes campaign and the no campaign um, to guide these uh, to guide those both campaigns. Um Okay, so the second uh, the second ballot measure is a local ballot measure, and it is the city of Portland's charter reform ballot measure. I am super interested in this one for a lot of different reasons, um, but basically because the future of Portland is at stake in a lot of ways. Like people have been talking about reforming Portland's form of government for decades. Um, as listeners of this podcast will know, there is a commission form of government where you have city commissioners who are literally in charge of running bureaus. Um, the proposed ballot measure does a few things. First, uh, okay, so this is from their website. So it allows voters to rank candidates in order of their preference using ranked choice voting. So it brings ranked choice voting to Portland. That's a big thing. Second, it creates four new geographic districts. Each of the four districts would have three members that would represent them on the Portland Council. Um, so you'd have a total of 12 members on the Portland Council. And then the council, this is the third piece, would focus on setting policy and an, a, a citywide elected mayor who's not from a specific zone, it represents the whole city, would, uh, would run the city's day-to-day -day operations with the help of a professional city administrator. So the mayor would lose their vote. This is something that Mayor Wheeler is concerned about, um, I think, except for in cases of a tie. Um, so. There's, there's several pieces of, quote, controversy surrounding this, but essentially what folks should know is while almost everyone agrees that the commission form of government is not a, an effective form of government for Portland, 
there are some very powerful people who are opposed to this measure as it stands. Mingus Maps, the city commissioner, friend of the pod, um, is against the fact that voters are being asked to vote yes or no on all of these reforms at one time. He thinks they should be broken apart. There's certain provisions he likes, there's certain provisions he doesn't. Mayor Ted Wheeler has expressed concerns that uh, this removes accountability uh, or makes accountability hard under the new system. Um, and I think coming from the perspective of a mayor, like the buck should stop somewhere. And if the mayor doesn't have a vote on policy decisions um, or the ability to veto or you know whatever it may be, that accountability can be challenging for the entire city. And uh, sort of for those reasons and others, the Portland Business Association uh, is suing to block the reform um, they're using what is called the single subject rule, which basically means that in Oregon, initiative petitions are supposed to have just one subject, and they're saying there's more than one subject included on this ballot measure. I have no idea what the the judicial branch will say about that. Um, but I just include that because this is a decades-long um, issue in Portland, and this is a chance for the city to change it. Um, I think progressives are lined up strongly behind the proposal. And some of the more moderate folks are, um, at this point, it seems pretty energized to defeat it. Um, Alex, any comment on that before we move on? Yeah, I actually, I do buy Commissioner Mapp's argument that it, it, it's, it is a lot of stuff to vote on basically at once. Uh, and yeah, this issue has been interesting to see play out because as you said, everybody wants reform. It's just like, what does the reform actually look like? And there seems to be so many semantics and so many different factions that are potentially even just opposing little pieces of the broader reform, but not against it overall, that it just makes it really politically interesting and very dynamic. So uh, yeah, definitely something we're paying attention to going forward still. All right, uh, item number four on our top five stories we're gonna be watching this summer, uh, sports with a Z. Uh, Alex and I, very well-known sports connoisseurs and experts on this podcast. Um, I say jokingly, however, we do want to have a sports episode where we talk about the intersection of politics, economics, and sports. This is actually a big deal in a state like Oregon. Um, two big sports stories. One, do the Blazers ultimately get sold uh, or is there movement uh, in a potential sale of Blazers, which I will just caveat by saying as of now, it does not look like there will be, but who knows. Uh, and then the second is, where does the University of Oregon and Oregon State University uh, end up in terms of conferences? Do they stay in the Pac-12 slash Pac-10 slash Pac-something else? Do they move to the Big 12? So yeah, so those are the two stories, Blazers and collegiate sports. Um, they both matter on an economic level at <laughs> in massive proportions that are actually sort of hard to, hard to quantify. Um, just the TV deals for the universities uh, like depending on which conference they join has multi million tens of millions of dollars implication for the university budgets. Um, obviously the Blazers issue matters on an even larger level, I would argue, because like there's a lot of, there's a lot of wealthy people in this country who want to own a sports team. And many of those wealthy people want to bring the sports team to their city uh, as that's exactly what happened to the Seattle Supersonics when they were sold and moved to Oklahoma City. Um, so there's an article Willamette Week we covered in the liftoff 
where basically actually it was an interview with Ron Wyden where he made clear he supports the sale to Phil Knight in part because he knows Phil Knight will keep the Blazers in Oregon and he will oppose any sale of the team that goes to that takes the Blazers to another city. There's no like the Senate doesn't have to vote to confirm these things. <laughs> um, he doesn't have any official power here um, that I'm aware of, at least. But he does have a relationship soft, with that soft power. He's got some soft power. He's got a relationship with Adam Silver, who used to be a congressional intern with or, former Oregon Congressman Lessa Coyne, um, which is kind of cool. And uh, the the uh, the interview is very like soft in the language that it uses, but he makes clear that he's had this conversation with the NBA commissioner. Um, so Alex, give us some sports analysis. Blazers, Pac-12, what are you thinking? Yeah, the Pac-12 thing is actually devastating uh, because so the two teams that the Pac-12 are losing is UCLA and USC. And of course, if you even semi follow football or basketball for that matter, too, uh, those are two of the best teams in, you know, the conference, basically. Of course, we do still have, I mean, we obviously have Oregon, we have Washington. You could even say we have the Beavers. You know, <laughs> supposed to laugh at that, Ben. Come on. I did. Uh, but but more importantly than the team, than UCLA and USC being good, what what is what is actually at stake here is the Los Angeles media market for television deals, because if they leave the conference, which they have uh, the number of households that are reached by the Pac-12 media market in a purchase by like ESPN or Fox or whatever is literally tens of millions fewer. And that's why it basically means U of O and OSU will get less money. That was not necessarily my reason, but that is a good point. Uh, I think that, uh, and we actually talked about this in terms of, uh, and it was funny, we talked about this with Rep Powers and she said she thought Portland's brand was like a very important thing to have. Uh, I think that like that Ducks football and the Ducks being a good team is very important for Oregon's overall brand. Uh, I can't tell you how many people I ran into when I was in DC that are like, where'd you go to school? I said, I went to university of Oregon, right? You tell someone you went to university of Idaho or Montana or, you know, uh, Iowa, whatever that they, they usually don't really care. People are like, wow, the Oregon Ducks, like the football team with the crazy jerseys and the fast plays and Chip Kelly and blah, blah, blah. People love that sort of stuff. Uh, and I think, I mean, in general, right, Oregon just kind of gets trashed nationally because of what happens in Portland. But like the Ducks are like, I think actually one of the most valuable pieces of Oregon's brand in general to people from outside of the state. Uh, and of course, if the which I mean, it sounds like the Pac-12 was basically falling apart because there's was rumors that Phil Knight was literally calling other conferences, cold calling them, which I mean, I've got to admit, that'd be pretty awesome to just be like <laughs> hanging out as some like conference commissioner and Phil Knight personally rings your cell phone. Uh, it's just like, hey, I want you to let the ducks into your conference. Uh, and that was that was reported in multiple different publications. So again, no one can confirm that's actually true, but it probably did happen. Uh, that's what I think is bad about the ducks. And then... Yeah, I think that the sale with the Blazers, I mean, Oregon is lucky because we have someone like Phil Knight and Phil Knight is just so astronomically wealthy. And I'm assuming the coalition he would bring that somebody or a coalition, basically Oregon in general will become still the majority stakeholder for the Blazers, uh, regardless of what happens into the future. Now, I think the concern actually is in terms of the Blazers being moved to another state is that uh, Allen who said in her statement that, you know, these estates, which of course she's referring to the state, the estate of Paul Allen, 
that can take decades to be able to wind down. Uh, Phil Knight is in his 70s. So unless like his estate was to buy the Blazers at some point in the next 20 or 30 years, I don't know how likely that is since estates of wealthy people tend to just kind of go all over the place once they pass. Uh, who knows what could happen to the Blazers at that point. But if it does, if it is able to happen in the next couple of years, I think, yeah, Phil Knight will gobble it up. There'll be no problem. The Blazers will still play in the Rose Garden. So, so quick fact check. Phil Knight is 84 years old. I was 14 uh, years off. So, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so A, there's that. B, uh, in fact, you found this article in the New York Post, obviously a, a national publication with a large readership. They had an interesting story about this, which apparently I think I'm going to try to find the tweet from you. You should pull up Damian Lillard's um, Twitter because I think he disproved uh, or or uh, said that one of these statements isn't true. But this is a direct quote from the New York Post article. Uh, according to Larry Miller, who's a former executive with the Blazers, Jody Allen even refused to take Phil Knight's call when the founder, Nike founder, who had an estimated fortune of $54.5 billion, put the initial offer together. Here's the direct quote from Miller. She did not take Phil's call. She deferred him to Bert. Um, then the next paragraph says, she has also refused to talk to Blazer star Damian Lillard, who, report, who reportedly has, has had issues with the way the team is being run, the team source claimed. I believe Lillard has said the second thing is not true. Have you? Did you find it? So, Ben, I wasn't able to find it on Twitter, but I did just pull up an article on NBC Sports that Damian Lillard did, in fact, deny that the Trailblazer owner, Jody Allen, ignored his calls and emails. So, okay. so uh, yeah. So, yeah, he he did release a statement uh, that basically said that is not true. Um, all right. So the fifth and final story that we will be tracking this summer Um does the red wave hit the Oregon state legislature? Um, this is a big question. Millions and millions of dollars will be spent that will help determine what the answer to that question is. Um, but what we mean by this is, as we've alluded throughout this podcast episode and in previous podcasts, horrible national environment for Democrats right now. Although I would argue it looks like it's getting better, a little bit better. Um, gas prices have fallen every day for 30 days. Um Hopefully there's going to be some movement on a reconciliation package from Senate Democrats, although Joe Manchin might have some other ideas on that. We'll, we'll, we'll see what happens at the national level. But even in good or relatively good um, midterm, first year midterm elections for um, uh, in a president's first term, it's almost always bad for the party in power. So that being said, everyone's sort of predicting this red wave, much like we saw in 2010. In 2010, the red wave was so significant that Republicans actually tied the Oregon State House. It was a 30-30 split um, between Republicans and Democrats. There was a co-speaker who was a Republican and a co-speaker who was a Democrat. Um, and it, they came really, really close to doing the same thing in the Oregon State Senate. Um, Democrats held a narrow majority in the Senate. Um, so, Alex, uh, what do you think? Oregon State Legislature, uh, how does the red wave fare in this state? Looking pretty good. Uh, and we also recently heard that the Republican State Leadership Committee, which is basically the political organite. So you have the RNC, right? That's the Republican National Committee. You have the NRSC, the NRCC, uh, which is the National Republican Congressional Committee that focuses on Congress, of course. And then you have the Senate, you know, whatever. The RLC focuses on state legislatures, and they just recently named Oregon as one of their top priority states. Uh, now, the reason that I think that 
is going to come with investment is because there was absolutely no need or no reason for them to name Oregon as one of their top priority states unless they were actually going to do something. Uh, that doesn't really feel like a fake jab or anything like that. And that, of course, came from the organization itself, not some sort of random media article. Uh, so yeah, I think it's looking pretty good. Uh, I know that before we did have Reagan to go through some of the uh, the different primaries and things like that. And I mean, he was pretty impressed with the flock of candidates that the GOP was able to have now. Uh, I also think that the new uh, the new GOP chairman, uh, who we're hoping to have on the podcast at some point, he's a small business owner. We've heard very good reviews from him with our different Republican sources that he is really concentrated on helping use the party to elect folks in the state legislature and on the state level. Uh, which, of course, anyone's heard me talk about the ORP knows for the most part, it's been a disaster over the past couple of years, decades, potentially. Uh, so, yeah, I think the wet, wet wave is looking great on the state level. But again, the Dems have held it off before. You really did hold it off in 2010. Of course, even though Republicans did gain a good number of seats and actually take over any chambers. And then two, 2014, I mean, that basically kind of fizzled out as well. So, uh, you know, we'll, we'll see what happens, but I think this year is looking good for the GOP, but Oregon Dems have been very resilient in their ability to keep winning elections. Well, and what people should remember too, is that this is the first election with these new maps. Um, so these are not the old districts. I will say, and again, candidate, Democratic candidate for the state legislature, you all know where I come down on most of most political questions. Um, I think it's going to be a very tough road for the Republicans um, like like so we we I think what was the generic I think that in the generic ballot Republicans were leading 4.7 percent um, I don't actually think that there's enough there's definitely not enough House seats where a 4.7 percent overperformance by Republicans wins them a tied or majority seats on the House side like definitely not on the Senate I don't know the numbers well enough but basically the the, the seats up for grabs um, are well, up for grabs is a is a generous term, but like the competitive seats where people will be spending money are Oregon City with Bill Kenimer and Mark Meek, Kim Thatcher's seat, um, who's running now against Rich Walsh uh, in the Salem area. Another Salem area seat held by Deb Patterson being challenged by an incumbent state representative um, and Representative uh, Moore Green. Um, and then the Medford seat, the Medford Ashland seat, where um, Jeff Golden, the incumbent, is running against the mayor of Medford. There's some others sort of around the edges. Some people would say and Betsy Emerson Johnson. Levy seats too. I would say that's a house it, seat. Uh, oh, oh yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So that yeah, but so so then you've also got maybe Betsy Johnson seat. Some people would say is competitive. Maybe the Senate seat where I live, um, which is a new one between uh, Aaron Woods and John Velez. Um, but really it's those core four seats. The question is what is like is 4.7% overperformance enough? And does that number hold, uh, or does it get worse, um, between now and the election? I think like, I understand why Republicans would, would target Oregon. Um, like I, like I, it, you know, I think it is plausible. I would not be like shocked if they did tie in the Senate, for example, um, but I think there's a it is more likely as of today, with all the factors we know today, that Democrats will retain a, uh, a majority in both chambers, although probably smaller than um, what is currently there. But I don't know. I haven't seen any polling on this. This is just me hypothesizing um, based on, you know, all that I've read, all that I know. Um, so, yeah, 
we'll see what happens. I think one big question, Alex, right, is like right now this article from Capital Chronicle sites, like the group is given, um, I think, $140,000 so far. That's that's a, a drop in the bucket of what will ultimately be spent mm-hmm. on these legislative races. Does that number get up to 500000 or a million dollars? And do do those investments attract other donors to contribute to Republicans? Um, yeah, so we'll see. Well, I mean, it's also where is the money spent, right? Like in the sense of, uh, I know from having worked on this nationally, there was some races that the NRCC spent money on in 2018 that every other group was like, what are you guys doing? Like, please give these millions of dollars to this race, which we are all focused on. You know, uh, one of the race I'm thinking of was one of Virginia. I forgot what her name was, but like she got absolutely smashed when in the election. They are the NRCC wasted millions of dollars on the race. It's hmm. are they the money is going to be there? I think right, but like, is it are they going to pick the winners? That's always I think a little bit up to deliberation because there's things that folks are seeing on the state level versus what the folks who are in DC who have the big map in front of them who are literally looking at these from a high level saying money here, money here, money here. And it's, it does, does that connect, you know, does that kind of come together nicely? And the answer can be sometimes. So uh, that'll be interesting to see as well. Yeah. And then, and then the final thing I'll say too, is like, and this, this matters less today than it did 10 or 20 years ago. Um, but it still does matter who the actual candidate is and what that candidate runs on and how they voted if they're an mm-hmm. incumbent. Like all those factors actually matter. And I think both Democrats and Republicans would make their case for why their candidates are stronger or the other sides are weaker. Um, but like there will be there will be races like, you know, I think <sighs> Tim Canope, not on the ballot this time. We'll use Tim Canope. Tim Canope vastly overperformed in his Senate district. Um, what Republicans would be expected to perform in that district. And by like a large number, we, I don't remember if we actually talked about that on the podcast or not, but um, like there will be different candidates who overperform expectations in their district. Betsy Johnson was another one who consistently overperformed in her district um, because of their relationship to the community, their profile, their voting record in office, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. So um, I will say like, this is not just a numbers game of like how much money comes in and what are the demographics of each district? Like it does matter who the candidates are, what kind of campaign they run and what kind of ties they have to the community. Um, so more to come on that front. Uh, Alex, any closing thoughts before we end this episode? Yeah, I've been seeing some polling, Ben, that your race isn't actually going so well. <laughs> yeah. What does the polling yeah. say? Yeah, Ben's in a, a plus 30 district, but it is it's neck and neck from everything, everything that I've seen. Neither of those things are true. Um, but yeah, thank you for keeping tabs on my district. We deliver anyway. fake news sometimes on this podcast. It happens. You know. <laughs> deliver fake news. You are <laughs> fake news, Alex Titus. That's true. I'm I'm the only responsible one for misinformation. Uh <laughs> but everybody, thanks, thanks for listening. Uh please make sure to hit the subscribe button if you haven't and give us five stars and then uh, definitely do look out for those analysis pieces that we're going to be covering on the liftoff and on the website shortly. Uh, those will be paid posts. So if you're not a paid subscriber, uh, you will be able to access those once you hit that lovely subscribe button there too. So uh, everybody, thanks again for tuning in and we'll see you in the next one. Thanks everyone. <laughs>